Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. We're doing something a little different this week for a couple of reasons. The first and most important is that we had an election on Tuesday, and we are going to discuss what happened in that election with my guest, Nate Cohn, from The New York Times. And the second reason it's a special show is because, unfortunately, this is the last episode of my podcast. I'm going to talk about that more at the end of the program. But for now, I want to turn to Nate, who is at our podcast studios in New York City and covers elections for the Times at The Upshot, which is part of The New York Times, and just led their election night and polling coverage. So, Nate, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Isaac. Do you feel bad that you've never listened to the podcast, even though uh, we're friends? I do not. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I should say Nate and I work together at The New Republic and uh, and are friends, and I thought that... Uh, Another way to make this a special show was to have him on. So, um, Nate, yes, thank you for being here. And uh, tell me just the first question I have for you is what's your what's your big takeaway from what we saw on on Tuesday night? I thought it was a good night for the Democrats. Uh, You know, it wasn't the night of their dreams necessarily, especially in the Senate. um, But I thought that their performance in the House was really, really impressive, given the formidable structural disadvantages they face in the chamber. I think in the end, they're probably going to win something like 39 seats. Right now, they're currently at 30. So there are a lot more Democratic seats yet to be picked up that I don't think people have realized. Um, you know, Clearly, the Democrats have to be disappointed by their performance in some high-profile contests in the Sun Belt um, in Arizona, where they may yet win when all the votes are counted. But at the moment, it was not the clear victory uh, for cinema that a lot of people expected. And in Florida, uh, Bill Nelson still has an outside shot to win, but it looks like they will lo- narrowly lose both the governor's race and Uh, the Senate race there. But overall, I don't see how you can conclude it was anything other than a great night for the Democrats. They're probably going to win the national popular vote by seven points. It's better than what the Republicans got in 2010 and 1994. Uh, So I think that by most of the standards that you use to assess these sort of things, this is about as good of an election as you can get in American politics right now. Was there any big surprise for you from the night in terms of your own expectations or the polling averages or that, that sort of took you aback? I thought the turnout was astonishingly high. I think we came in with high expectations for turnout, um, but it, there, it's very easy to look at highly competitive congressional districts and find places where the turnout matched or exceeded 2016. And there is no precedent for that in the historic record um, in contemporary American politics. I think that when all of the votes are unencountered, we'll get up to something near 115 or maybe even 120 million votes cast nationwide. In 2014, it was 82 million. In the presidential election, it was 137. In Georgia 6, where the Democrat is going to pull off an upset in a place where the Democrats really struggled to get over the top in the special election last year, the vote tally is already over 2016. And, you know, that level of participation in a midterm election is is really incredible. You know, I know that we're still at a place where we don't know exactly which groups turned out at what levels, but... Um, was there turnout among any specific group, um, I guess, aside from maybe suburban white women, which we've heard a lot about for a very long time, that kind of took you aback uh, with how high the levels were? It was across the board. It was a little weaker in white working class areas. Um, it was weaker among Hispanic voters. But those are common patterns in midterm elections. It just It's an across the board increase. Um, it was a more Democratic turnout than in recent midterm elections, but I'm not sure that Democratic turnout will ultimately be assessed to have materially exceeded Republican turnout, if it did at all. Um, it was just a very high turnout election across the board. Explain for people, if the Democrats got such a popular vote win in the House, why that doesn't mean that Democratic turnout exceeded Republican turnout. Well, when I talk about Democratic versus Republican turnout, I'm mainly thinking in terms of 
people who are committed partisans, people who participate in Democratic or Republican primaries, people who are registered as Democrats or Republicans. When you think about American politics in terms of those two groups, Republican turnout almost always beats Democratic turnout, even in elections where Democrats do very well, like 2008 um, or 2006. I think that in the special and general elections, since Trump has been president, there has been rough parity between those two groups. What puts Democrats over the top in these kind of elections is that they tend to excel among voters who don't uh, necessarily have strong ties with either party, uh, whether because they haven't participated in primaries or because they're not registered with the party. And in a lot of these well-educated suburban districts, I think the Democrats want a lot of crossover vote from people who in the data look like Republicans but may not be anymore after two years of the Trump presidency. And I think they want a lopsided share among voters who aren't affiliated with the party. You know, I, I think probably if you asked most people and told them that turnout was exceptionally high in this election and asked them the reason for that, they would probably say something like Donald Trump is the president. People have very uh, strong feelings about Trump one way or the other. And yeah. the country seems in a moment of um, sort of political uncertainty in all these ways. It's a hard question to answer. But I mean, do you have any reason to think that that sort of conventional wisdom is not correct and that there's some other reason turnout is so high? Nope. I think that the conventional wisdom is probably dead on in this case. People care a lot about American politics right now in a way that they would not if a different person um, was president of the United States. Does this suggest to you something about what turnout levels might be in 2020? And um... Oh, yeah. That's going to be really high. The only cap right now, in my view, is how many people get decide to register to vote before the election. Which you also think, I assume, could be high? I would think. I have a little bit of – the only question I have about that is I think there's a lot of evidence that right now um, you know, people with a college degree – and like hardcore political activists are extraordinarily engaged in a way that they haven't been before. But it's not as obvious to what extent people who are on the periphery of politics, people who don't usually even vote in presidential elections have been activated by the last few years. I think it's clear that the sort of people who vote in presidential elections are more engaged than they ever have been. But And I assume that will draw in additional people from the periphery of the American electorate. But that will we won't know that until uh, people start regis- registering to vote who aren't registered at the moment. Do you have some sense of what turnout among the 18 to 29 year old group was? It has to be really high for to get this level of turnout. Um, In the early vote, there was a lot of evidence it was going to be high. I think that some in some of the early voting states that 18 to 29 year olds were already up to something like eight or nine percent of the electorate. I know that doesn't sound like much, but in a lot of these states, there are only 16 percent of the registrants and young voters tend to vote on Election Day, not early. So I think it's reasonable to suppose that the you know turnout among 18 and 29 year olds got up to something like you know 12, 13 percent presidential electorates usually something like 15 percent given how old the country is right now. Um, so that's that's really good for a midterm election. Were you surprised by that Republicans managed to win as many Senate seats as they did, basically drawing even with Democrats, if maybe slightly ahead in Arizona and and Florida, and beating them fairly handily, Democratic incumbents in. Indiana and Missouri, and I should say drawing basically even in Montana too. I am not surprised by the red state part. I'm not surprised that the Democrats lost big in Indiana, Missouri, and I'd add Tennessee to that list. Um, in in our polling, the Democrats just never really were doing exceptionally well in deeply Republican areas. Um, and my understanding is that the private polling showed something similar. And I don't fully understand why there were a lot of state public polls that at the end of the race showed Democrats faring very well in places like Missouri and Indiana. But my my sense is that that is not uh, what the conventional wisdom was within the two parties heading into the election. And I don't think that the small amount of polling data that we did in the Senate supported that either in terms of our 
Tennessee poll. I am surprised by the result in Arizona and Florida to some extent. I don't think that any of I don't think that it's a huge polling error, but you know, it's a three point polling error in two states that were pulled by a lot, or, or rather, were pulled a lot um, by a diverse set of pollsters using diverse methodologies, and you know, in general, those polls were of high quality too. So I'm I am a little surprised by that. Those are races that on paper the Democrats ought to win in a wave election, an open seat. Or let's, uh, one useful thing to do is to compare it to a House race. You know, in the House races where uh, the Republican retired and Trump won by three points, you would expect that the Democrats would have won that seat comfortably. I think that if you went down the list, you would find the Democrats won every seat that was comparable to the Arizona Senate race. And yet the Democrats didn't win that. So um, I don't have a good explanation offhand for why that's the case, but I do think it's fair to say it was a surprise. Have you gone and looked back at some of these polls which may have gotten the result wrong? And and I, I was just curious because there were some, especially in the Midwest, although most of these states were talking about, well, some of them, I guess, are in the Midwest, but um, not Arizona and Florida, that, you know, polls before the 2016 election understated the amount of lesser educated white voters uh, in their polls, and that was a problem. Um, do you think that happened again? The electorate is not white enough in these polls? Do you have some sense? I don't. I think that it's troubling, though, that, you know, we had another wave of final polls in Ohio, Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, Missouri that all seem to overstate the strength of the Democrat. Um, I would point out for what it's worth, and we didn't do a ton of polling in the Midwest, that the polling that we did in Iowa in House races was basically dead on. Um, and in, in Minnesota, the one late poll we did in a rural area had we, we overestimated the Republicans. So, you know, I don't it's hard for me to assess why other pollsters seem to have some issues there, but it, I, yeah, I am troubled by it. Were you generally surprised by the results in Florida, not just the Senate race, but the but the governor's race, where where Gillum's yeah. support was also overstated? I was. You know, I, I've only glanced at the results by county, but what's really striking to me is that it really looks to me like Gillum and Nelson did the things that they were supposed to do. I mean, they won Pinellas County, which is St. Petersburg, by you know, four or five point margin. They won Duval County, which is Jacksonville, which Democrats basically never win. I can't tell you the last time a Democrat won Jacksonville in a high profile state election. Obama didn't win it. They won Seminole County, which are these, which is the suburbs north of Orlando. Obama didn't win those counties either, even as he carried the state. Um, It seems to me that just at a glance that the results in Miami-Dade County and in the Orlando area where there's a large Hispanic vote um, looks fairly disappointing for the Democrats. But, you know, I don't think that covers a full three-point error in the polls. Hmm, That's interesting. Well, um, I want to turn to the Midwest. Uh, There has been... There had been a lot of talk after 2016 that, you know, after Democrats got slaughtered in the Midwest that, uh, you know, at some point maybe they would have to turn to kind of a different map, which would include states like Arizona and Nevada and maybe Florida or Georgia or North Carolina. Um, But looking at the results last night, um, or excuse me, Tuesday night, it seems that Democrats, even if you say they didn't quite match their polls, did better in the Midwest. They have the governorships in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania and Michigan. Um, Trump approval rating is below 50 percent, somewhat even somewhat significantly below 50 in some of these states. Um, what did what did the results tell you there about Democratic strength in the Midwest? And, and what did it make you think about 2020, if anything? Well, first, let me say, and you know this because we talk all the time, that I have always felt that the Democratic path is to return in the Midwest. Uh, there are more swing voters there. The Sun Belt states, I think, offer relatively limited upside for Democrats. And, you know, the 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 final thing is that if the Democrats don't 
have a strategy intended to sort of stem the bleeding among white working class voters, it could get worse for them. There's no reason to suppose that 2016 was the floor among that group. And there are additional electoral votes for the Democrats to lose in a place like Minnesota um, or Maine. Uh, That said, you know, I thought the election results were broadly consistent with the view that the Democrats could win those states back. Um, But I, I don't know that I thought that it was a very impressive performance, Isaac. I thought that Debbie Stabenow's performance in Michigan was fairly disappointing. Uh, given that it was a wave election where the Democrats won the national popular vote by seven points in the end, probably an incumbent Democrat winning Michigan by seven points or so in the end does not impress me all that much. Um, the Democrats fell short of reclaiming the governorship in Iowa. Um, Scott Walker did w- lose in Wisconsin, and that that is important. Um, but I would note that if the Democrats want to win through the Midwest alone, that they would need all of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And while I, I think they showed strength there, I'm not sure that they showed outsized strength that indicates the Democrats were going to do better there in the national po- than they would in the national popular vote, which had been the case before Trump was the president. At the same time, you know, I didn't think that their performance in the Sun Belt should leave them very optimistic about their ability to break through there either. I mean, they got um, a very strong turnout among black voters in Georgia and didn't quite get them over the top. Arizona and Florida seem really close. I think they can be extremely proud of how they did in Texas, but Texas was the state that they were furthest from winning. And I, I continue to think that there's danger for the Democrats in sort of getting caught uh, in between, where they are doing way better than they used to do in the Sun Belt, but not quite enough good enough, not quite good enough to win. And they are doing worse than they used to do in the Midwest, and maybe not quite good enough to cobble together to to cobble together 270 using those states alone, because you would have to run the table in Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin to get over the top without any Sunbelt states that were carried by the president. One little thing that I, I'm kind, I've kind of read into the result last night is that I, maybe the Democrats can feel a little bit better about their performance in parts of the Midwest that feel a little bit more like the Farm Belt than the Rust Belt. Um, I think that their performance in Minnesota and Iowa and Wisconsin, and I would add South Dakota and Montana to that list, and Kansas, you know, was generally pretty good. And I thought that to the extent that the Democrats you know, had some disappointments last night, um, it was in places like Michigan and Ohio. Um, and I would add West Virginia to the list, although Joe Manchin narrowly won. Um, and so that, that kind of makes sense to me, given the way that uh, the president's policies have played out in terms of you know, steel tariffs and the effect that's had on agricultural industry versus how people in declining manufacturing towns might interpret it. It also fits with a really long pattern in American elections where uh, – there's sort of a countercyclical tendency in the western half of the country where the incumbent party just generally does worse in places like Wisconsin or Montana than they did when they uh, were the party out of power. Um, so I, I can imagine a scenario where the Democrats actually do quite a bit better in Iowa in 2020. I don't know whether that would be a scenario in which they won the state, but I think it's easier for me to imagine them picking up a lot of ground in Iowa than with respect to the national popular vote. Uh, than it would be for me to imagine it in a place like Ohio, which voted very similarly. When we talk about the Midwest, are we talking about Pennsylvania? Uh, I am not. Okay. Uh, I know I that's a big debate, but to me, it's not It's not in the Midwest. I, it does share some demographic characteristics with the Midwest, like they're both relatively white, but I don't think that historically that they move in unison. If you go through Pennsylvania on one of your fancy Acela trains, I think that it doesn't there you go. the Midwest. I, I get yeah. to see Pennsylvania out the Acela all the time. How did you think the Democrats did in Pennsylvania, and, and what do you think of that state in 2020? I think that Pennsylvania ought to be a decent state for the Democrats in 2020. Um, I thought they did okay there. I didn't think they did great, though. I mean, they only picked up three House seats despite um, a new map that was drawn in their favor. They weren't able to get over the top in the first congressional district, which is based in Bucks County. 
And admittedly, the Democrats had maybe their worst nominee of the cycle in that district. Um, but, you know, it wasn't an exceptional performance either. They did do very well in the governor's race and the Senate race, though, better than they did in equivalent races in Michigan and Ohio. So if I were ranking the states right now based strictly on the midterm result, I would feel better if I were a Democrat about Pennsylvania than I would feel about Michigan. Your friend, Harry Enten, who does basically what you do for CNN and used to be at 538, uh, had a thread this morning, this is Thursday morning, essentially arguing that if President Trump's approval rating among voters, not all adults, which is usually lower and I think which people have been looking at and being slightly um, given the wrong impression by because his approval rating with all adults is, is significantly lower than it is with people who show up at the polls. But it was it was it seems to have been about 44, 53 from whatever we're getting from the exit polls that essentially and it's 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 a little higher than that in Wisconsin. It's about that in Michigan and Pennsylvania that essentially he is likely to lose re-election. Um, I'm curious if you saw that thread. Well, you should have seen that thread because I sent it to you and um, <laughs> and what you've made of it. Um, I'm reluctant to read into the state of a presidency um, or rather to read into a president's presidential election chances based on their standing at the midterm. You know, I remember back at this time in 2010 that there were a lot of people that thought that Barack Obama was going to be in a lot of trouble in the Midwest because his approval rating was under 50 and because the Democrats lost, you know, a whole bunch of governor's races and Senate races in many of the same states we're talking about today. So, you know, I do think that it would be a mistake to just assume that because the president is where he is today, that that's where he'll be in two years. Um, that said, you know, the president's approval rating has been really static. It's been stable. And, you know, Trump won the election in, you know, an unusual way, which is that he won it with 46 percent of the vote and didn't eclipse 50 percent in any of the states that we're talking about right now. I think one plausible interpretation of all of this is that the sort of voters who decided either not to vote because they didn't like both candidates or the voters that elected to write in a candidate or support a minor party candidate uh, continue to feel as negatively towards the president as they did at the time of the 2016 election, except that now they would be uh, more likely to support a Democratic candidate, either because now politics are more defined by the president himself or because the Democrats are likely to find a more palatable nominee. I'm not saying that interpretation is right, by the way, but I think that that interpretation has always had some merit, and I think it is at least consistent with the results. Um, so if I were a Democrat looking to be optimistic, that I would focus more on that possibility than the, than the assumption that if the president's approval rating is at 46 today, that he will be in trouble in 2020. I want to ask you about Texas. Uh, there was obviously a lot of excitement among Democrats about Beto O'Rourke's run to, against Ted Cruz, where I guess he lost by about three points. I don't know if the entire vote is in yet. Is that about right? I think right? it's under three points at this point. 2.8 like, or something. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty incredible. And I have to say, as we talked about, I, I never really understood Beto's appeal here. I always sort of assumed it was really about people not liking Ted Cruz and the dream of turning Texas blue. But I, I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong about that. So you were impressed with his showing, though? I was, yeah. You know, I um, I looked back and I, I I was talking about this with friends, but then I realized that I didn't really know what I was arguing. So what I was what I was thinking was it seemed extremely impressive to me. And then I thought to myself, well, Hillary actually only lost Texas by about nine points. So Beto improved, you know, six points basically on what she did. Uh, but the national, you know, the national vote also shifted significantly to Democrats. So so but explain why it was so impressive what Beto did. Well, I think that one, the baseline isn't simply Hillary Clinton's performance. Ted Cruz is an incumbent. I know that a lot of people joke about Ted Cruz as if he's not a popular incumbent at all. And, you know, maybe he isn't popular at all. But as an incumbent, you do expect 
uh, the Republican to be able to outrun the national the national result. Um, the second reason I think it's impressive impressive is because Texas is a state where Democrats on paper should really struggle in midterm elections. They're very dependent upon young and non-white voters who don't usually turn out. And I would note that in the results, there's pretty decent evidence that uh, Hispanic turnout was not as good for uh, Beto O'Rourke as it was for Hillary Clinton in 2016. There are a lot of South Texas counties where Beto is running behind Clinton. So what I see is a stupendous performance by Beto in metropolitan areas um, that really uh, in, all, in all seriousness, I mean, a lot of the tallies that he put up in metropolitan Texas are consistent with winning statewide. Um, if you stipulate that you believe the Democrats can get a better turnout among Latino and young voters in a presidential year. When, when you consider the disadvantages that I think a Democrat had in Texas in a midterm year, um, I think it comes out looking – and you consider that Ted Cruz is an incumbent. I think uh, the Beto performance looks very impressive. Does this make – does this election, um, just again pivoting once more to 2020 – Give you any kind of more insight into the type of candidate you think Democrats should run? I would point out two things about what we see in the results so far. One is that just being a progressive superstar is not enough to fundamentally transform an electorate and win a race. You know, there were a lot of progressive candidates who won primaries this cycle on some sort of argument that, you know, if we mobilize the base that we can transform the electorate and win in places where we don't usually win. I didn't, it didn't happen. Um, the Democrats that I saw who outperformed the most were people who were relatively moderate. I mean, they weren't necessarily centrist or something, but they, they weren't running as progressive firebrands. And yet something about their biography um, still made them really compelling, um, both to the progressive base and to moderate voters. A lot of them had military backgrounds. A lot of them were just compelling candidates, really talented um, candidates who came forward in a year when uh, Democrats needed them to. Um, and so if I were a Democrat looking at 2020, I would look at the people who did best in this year and I would say that they are young. Um, they still managed to excite people without doing it by um, listing off every you know policy dream of the, of the left. Uh, that's not to say, by the way, that you can't win doing that. It's just that you know I don't think that there's necessarily all that much upside if you can excite people um, by other means. To me, you know, it's not all different from what Obama did. I mean, one of Obama's great strengths was that he managed to sort of be something for everybody. You know, if you were a centrist, you could see Obama as a centrist. If you were a progressive, you could see him as a progressive. And I think that Donald Trump is a similar candidate in his own respect, where there are conservatives that see him as a conservative, but there are a lot of white moderate voters in the Midwest who voted for Barack Obama who don't see him as a conservative extremist at all. They see him as someone who you know, was fighting for working people in much the same way that uh, Democrats have traditionally been thought to fight for working people. Um, so I, if I were a Democrat, I'd be looking for someone who has that combination of appeal, someone who has the ability to reach out to moderates on pocketbook issues, who has a compelling biography. I'd probably choose them to be, I'd probably suggest that they were a young person um, and I wouldn't make it an ideological referendum. We're entering an era of American politics where the Senate is going to be very tough for Democrats um, just because of the way the Senate functions and the divisions, urban, rural divisions, et cetera. Uh, obviously, Joe Manchin won, but not by that much. And John Tester won barely. And um, Claire McCaskill and Joe Donnelly lost in Missouri and Indiana, respectively. I'm, I'm wondering what you think Democrats need to do to get to a point where they can ever have a Senate majority again. I mean, maybe they could get it in 2020, but, but broadly speaking, if, if the parties keep going in this, these directions, what they need to do. 
well, they need the parties not to be going in these directions. You know, I don't think that there's an answer to your uh, question conditional in the first clause of it. I, I mean, I think that if you continue to polarize the country along uh, racial and educational lines, the Democrats will keep doing better in um, urban states that you know are diverse and well-educated with large populations, and that will not be rewarded in the Senate. Uh, I mean, look at the places where the Democrats had their best nights, um, Texas, Georgia. I mean, those are states where the Democrats just aren't, they're not going to be rewarded for it in the Senate. So if you don't, if you can't keep open democratic appeal among white working class voters, um, then there's nothing you can do about it from a democratic standpoint. And what would, what, what do you think it would take to appeal to more of those white working class voters? I mean, it's a larger question, but. I mean, it is a larger question. I mean, I think that as long as American politics is defined by immigration and by, you know, issues that polarize the electorate along racial and geographic lines, that we'll probably see a continued trend towards polarization along racial and geographic lines. Um, so I just, I, you know, I don't think that there's all that much the Democrats can do to stop this, you know, as long as the basic breakdown of these coalitions continues and the Democrats continue to fight over these same issues. Now, that said, sometimes the issues change. Um, you know, in 2012, we were not talking very much about um, immigration. In 2012, uh, we talked about gay marriage and abortion a lot. In 2012, Planned Parenthood was an issue and so on. Um, in 2012, the Democrats were the ones running on trade and outsourcing and being capital. Um, so, you know, it's possible that a that the Democrats can at some point, you know, return to a set of issues that are a little bit more favorable to them uh, with white working class voters. But I don't think that if you keep relitigating of the the issues of the 2016 election, that the Democrats are going to get a different result in terms of the overall geographic breakdown of the electorate. So what what are those issues that you're talking about? Immigration, being on uh, the pro-trade side of trade. I think that combination of issues is really tough for Democrats in a lot of places. And I, I you know, although I, I don't like the word identity politics or something, I mean, I think that as long as that's a major force in the culture, that that's tough for Democrats, too, in a lot of these places. Right. Well, so the immigration thing that I that I wanted to f sort of ask you about was, you know, I know you were not following kind of the news that closely because you were doing your polls and getting ready for Election Day. But obviously, this caravan issue was a huge issue that the White House and Fox News and the conservative media infrastructure was talking about every single day. And there were debates in the media about um, or among liberals, I should say, about whether Democrats need to talk more about this issue and, you know, what they should be saying about it. And it was a, you know, it was a big issue in the two weeks leading up to the election. And of course, now it's happened. Fox has completely dropped it as a story. The White House isn't talking about it anymore, which suggests that maybe they didn't think it was actually that important a story in the first place. But, you know, how do how do Democrats deal with an issue like that, especially if Democrats feel that, you know, the issue is sort of being ginned up just for political purposes and it's not actually about addressing some real kind of yeah. problem in the society? I think the Democrats have a real dilemma on immigration. Uh, and I think the basics of the dilemma is that they think it's a moral issue. And the political reality, though, is that because of the way our electoral system is configured, that the sort of people who disapprove of the Democratic view on immigration have a lot of sway. Um, you know, if it were a random, if it were another issue, if it were something um, where you could imagine the party choosing to take a step back, I think that would be a, a natural thing to do. You know, 
I don't like the compare. I don't like comparing everything to 1992 and Bill Clinton. But there were a lot of issues where the Democrats were sort of, you know, outpacing out. You know, they were a step ahead of the electorate on a, on a number of issues at that time. And you know, Bill Clinton didn't you know go to being conservative on all of those issues, but he at least you know softened the Democratic position. I think that if the Democrats could do something like that on immigration, it, it would probably be in their interest to do so. Um, and if they did soften their stance on immigration, I think they would have more credibility to put up a fight with the president on, um, you know, the president's most outlandish views you know, to take the caravan, for instance. You know, I don't think that the Democrats have a ton of credibility with the voters they care about most on those issues um, so long as, you know, they are, you know, talking about abolishing ICE or something. And I think that the Democrats would probably do well to take a step back on those sort of issues if they can and feel, you know, morally like that's something they can do. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, this is, I think one of the dilemmas of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem with Trump because he has, he's so good at commanding attention, but also when you're not in power, which is that you can't set the agenda in the same way. And so it, sometimes it feels like the, the sort of agenda is being set for them and they have to respond. And it's, it's a tricky way to figure out how exactly to do it. Absolutely. I think that from a messaging standpoint, if you're a presidential candidate, you know, we're not we're not very far removed from when Barack Obama talked, you know, supported deportations, supported more border security in the way that he framed his stance on immigration. And I feel like that would be a problem for a Democrat in the 2020 primary um, to basically rehash Obama's message on the issue. And, you know, I think that when the Democrats move far enough to move far enough to the left on an issue, they you know, lose a little bit of credibility to push back on the most extreme stuff on the right. And again, I'm not trying to make an argument about what the party should do necessarily because, you know, political parties always have to make, always have to balance electoral considerations with the issues that define the party. And immigration is increasingly an issue that defines the party. So if, you know, they're saddled with the issue, then they just have to try and make the argument as best they can. But I do think that the 2008 and to a lesser extent 2012 era Democratic message on immigration would be more effective for them than the one they have now. I want to talk briefly about your polling project, uh, you, the New York Times, the Upshot, and Siena, the polling company, did a bunch of House and Senate polls. Um, Siena College, for what it's worth. Siena College. Okay, so there's not a separate polling company there. It's just the college. Yeah, they have. it's a research institute that's affiliated with the university. Okay, all right, fair enough. So um, I've talked to you about this enough. I should know this rather than uh, being clueless about it. But anyway, how did you feel the polling project went? And what do you think the sort of larger value you were trying to get across in doing it was? What was the larger value trying to get across? I think that we felt like people had unrealistic expectations for polling um, after 2016. And we also felt that people didn't understand the the uncertainty of polling um, heading into 2016. Uh, I think there are a lot of people that look at polls as being fairly pre- – as aspiring to be precise measurements of the electorate. I have certain friends who call me and ask about why the Gallup poll moved three points or why different polls have modestly different results. And I understand why there are lots of people – why there are a lot of people out there who have that expectation. The polls are reported as firm numbers, 47, 45, with scientific margin of, of margins of error, like plus or minus four points. They are written with headlines and leads that make them sound like they're facts. You know, Hillary Clinton closed in the closing days of the campaign or whatever. Um, but that's not really how I see polling. That's not how we see polling at the upshot. We think of polls as being pretty fuzzy things that are deeply uncertain, that are dependent on 
a whole lot of assumptions by pollsters and they're also they they face significant challenges nowadays. I mean, the response rate on telephone surveys is extremely low. And so from our point of view, it's almost a miracle that polling is as effective and accurate as it is given the challenges that it faces. Um, so our goal in this project was sort of to break people's understanding of polling back down and build it back up, to see it as something that's extremely fraught, to see it as something that is challenging, um, something that only in the end yields a very fuzzy answer that hopes to get you in the ballpark of the truth but can't do it precisely. And then you know, we thought the big magic trick at the end was that we thought our polls were going to be pretty good and that at the end of it, you could come away being both confident in polling and not view it as um, precise and as exactly as maybe people expected to be before. And you know, my, I don't know whether we succeeded on that front. Um, I feel like based on looking at Twitter interactions that we did in some respects at least, um, I think that in terms of our final results, I feel great about them. I think that they're about as good as you can hope for in you know house polls of 500 people that are you know by their nature fairly noisy with a large margin of error as I think people got to see in real time. Um, but my hope at the end of it is that people view polling a little bit more like we do and understand both what it can and can't do. Why do you love polling so much? What's what's so important about it? What 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 is it? What do you think it tells us? I think that this is a democracy. I think that public officials, journalists, everyone who's part of the democratic process makes decisions in part on their view of public opinion, makes decisions based on their understanding of what wins and loses elections, what won or lost them the last election, or what will win them the next one. Um, and the way that we reach all those conclusions is with polling. And so if the polling doesn't work, if polls are giving a misleading impression of how candidates are doing, about how voters respond to issues, about why elections were won and lost, then the democratic process doesn't work because then politicians and journalists are making decisions based on erroneous assumptions about how the electorate will react. And that can lead to serious downstream consequences because in the end, the voters have the final say regardless of what the polls say before then. And so if the actors in the democratic process are misinterpreting the electorate, then the democratic process isn't working. Um, so I think polling is really important. Now, you can make all sorts of arguments about why you wish that none of those things were true and that politicians you know, weren't trying to win elections or that the media didn't cover elections based in part on their assumptions about who would win or lose and that everyone went in blind and only focused on policy um, and that you know presidents just did what they believed was in the best interest of the country without regard for its political consequences. And I think we tend to value the politicians and journalists, by the way, who do that the most. But that is not how it works. And so long as that's true, I think that getting it right is really important. Yeah, I I don't disagree with all that. I mean, I think I think it's complicated with horse race polling because I think I think a lot of the conversation around it is pretty kind of um, pretty lame. Um, but uh, well, I mean, take the president's conduct on the caravan that you were just talking about. I mean, why did he do that? I don't know whether the president did that because of some polling data that showed him that immigration was a strong issue for the Republicans in a lot of the most important Senate states in a direct way like that. But it is part of a calculated decision about the way that an issue would affect an electoral outcome. It's based on um, an assumption about what kinds of voters you need to win in what states and with what issues. And all of that comes from polling um, in one way or another. So it has a it has an important effect, even horse race polling. 
So on election night, both the the New York Times has this thing called the needle, which looks at the which is kind of a live look at um, the odds that Democrats will win the House or Republicans will win the Senate or whatever it was, uh, whatever it is. And so that's sort of going on as the results are coming in. You guys had a little bit of trouble with the needle on Tuesday night. Can you explain exactly what happened? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is election being live, live forecasting is really hard from a technical standpoint. You don't really get an opportunity to test it. The election results, the election begins, and if it doesn't work, then you have to try and debug it then. And we had sort of issues in our the what I guess is probably I can casually describe as the, the data pipeline, getting data to us and to the model. And that meant that we were not able to publish the needle until um, later in the night than we had hoped. Um, in particular, we actually had ambitions for our forecast to be much more powerful than it had in the past. We were going to rely on precinct data from Georgia, Virginia, Florida, Minnesota, California, maybe some other places to really supercharge our estimates, particularly early in the night when there isn't much hard data yet and you're only looking at early votes. And we thought that you know, by 745, we would have an extremely granular understanding of the race in a way that no one else would. And uh, literally none of the precinct data materialized um, and never did. And we had to flip to a model that depended exclusively on counties like our 2016 one. Um, and once we did, um, things looked you know pretty normal and right, and then we published it. Nate Silver's uh, at five thirty eight. His model also, his house model also got a little a little funny there for a while. It kind of went up to about ninety two percent Dem take the house, and very quickly went down to about thirty eight percent, and then yeah. boomerang back up to about fifty seven percent, where it kind of stayed for a while, and then and then went up again. I mean, the the kind of objection you see to this sort of live modeling on election night is that it drives people crazy because they feel anxious and people feel like. You know, well, I, they're, they're, you know, I don't oh, know what was on. going on with the 538 model. I can just say that, you know, when we turned the model back on and backfitted it, we never had Democratic chances drop beneath 85 percent. It's it's a hard job, but I don't see that. I I mean, I what I see your that, that doesn't seem like a fair example to me in terms of the overall enterprise. I think of um, election night forecasting as it's almost self-evident that you would do it. We always are trying to figure out what's happening in the world as soon as we can. That's what journalists are always trying to do. And um, waiting until every last vote is counted is usually entirely unnecessary. And we can tell you something about what's happening in the world before then we should. Fair enough. I, I guess what I was going to ask is, do you think that um, given that given that if, if 538 and your model both had different trouble, a different variety of trouble, you explained what yours was. I don't know exactly what happened at 538. I guess what I'm asking, though, is that is this such a fraught thing and that people are sort of so on edge that and it's so hard to get right because it's so complex that that in itself is a reason to kind of not trot things out on Election Day or you don't buy that? No, I don't. I mean, I think that technical issues on, you know, on in a live setting are they're going to happen. We didn't publish anything. Um, and frankly, our forecast was uh, really good. We would not have called a single race strong if we had used it. We would have said throughout the entire night, even when people were freaking out about Democratic chances, they were on track to win the House. Um, we, Although the precincts didn't work, if we had, we would have shown Democrats on track to win in Virginia 2 and Virginia 7 very quickly, which um, would have led the night to have a totally different, totally different feeling for most viewers, I think. Um, I'm, I am sad that uh, we were unable to publish it as quickly as we had hoped with all the data we had hoped, but that I, my only regret is that we didn't, is that it didn't work more quickly, not that it shouldn't be done. What time did you go to bed on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning? 
Um, 7.30. And when did you wake up again? Um, maybe noon. Okay. And did you sleep last night? I got to bed maybe by 2. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm trending back. I should note, by the way, as, as you know, I've been staying up until 5 a.m. for a while now. And I've been doing all of that to build these precinct projections in the key states that ended up being completely useless to us. So, uh, Well, that's a, it's a very sad story. It um, is sad. Yeah, no, you and I have, have talked basically every day until Election Day for the last uh, two months, probably, um, with me calling you to get your opinion on things. And then we stopped talking until now. So it is good to hear you. And uh, given it's my last show, I should probably say that, Nate, when we met at, at New Republic, we briefly shared an office in 2012. And um, I would bug him because every day at 1 p.m. the Gallup poll would come out. With the uh, presidential approval rating, was it was it a presidential approval or I was it the, uh, horse the horse race? They had the horse race. It was the horse race with Obama and Romney, and um, you know my uh, my then girlfriend, other people in my life got very sick of me bugging them for opinions and um, thoughts about the poll. And but Nate was sitting right next to me, and he was the polling expert. So ever since then, we've uh, been bonded. And uh, Nate, it's uh, great to have you as the uh, final guest on my show. It's a privilege. Congratulations. And um, I also look forward to getting my uh, license as a therapist in polling at the end of our uh, at the end of our friendship. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully that will be a long time off uh, from now. Well, hopefully I can uh, I take that back. Hopefully I can get the the certificate well before then. Okay. Yes, I hope so too. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Take care. And that's our show for today. And as you've heard, this is our final show. Period. It's been a real pleasure doing the show and being at Slate for the last few years. And I'm moving on somewhere else, but uh, I really had a wonderful experience here interacting with the listeners who wrote to me. A couple people who I talked to at book events and stuff who liked the show, and that that meant so much to me to hear that. And um, so I just wanted to say thank you to everyone for listening. And I also wanted to thank a few people specifically for their help on the show. The first is Audrey Dilling, who kind of helped conceive the show with me and was the first producer and uh, was really great to help get it off the ground. And then Max Jacobs, who is the producer now once Audrey left and uh, has done a fantastic job and uh, really made this show work week in and week out and uh, does all the things that I just cannot do and have no skill at. And I also want to just thank all the technical people who've helped out, Topher Ruth and people here in Berkeley, people in Washington, Danielle Hewitt, uh, June Thomas in Slate at Slate New York, uh, Steve Lichtai, who ran Slate Podcasts, um, just all these people who really um, not just got the show, sold ads for it so we could keep doing it, but also just kind of gave me ideas and helped me along the way and corrected mistakes I made and kept me on my toes. And um, it's been it's been a real, real honor doing this the last year and a half. And I want to thank everyone again so much for listening and uh, all the best.